Pastor. We are starting a new series, starting a journey through the book of 1 Peter. We're going to go through 1 Peter and then 2 Peter. And so 1 Peter, we're going to break up the book into really two, two series. We're going to have nine weeks in a series called Exiled in Hope. And then we're going to do a, another series within 1 Peter called Kingdom Submission. Kingdom Submission. So this series, uh, Exiled in Hope, Really, it's a series that's centered around the reality that we are strangers and exiles in a land that is not our own, that we belong to the kingdom of God. And so I just want to go before the Lord in prayer as we start this journey. ask that you would uh, join me in prayer and pray that God would be with us. God, we thank you for this morning as we open your word. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather together as a church body. And, and we thank you that we, get to, that we get to do this. So many places around our country and maybe even around the world uh, Lord, they don't have the opportunity right now. And Lord, we are so blessed to be able to do this. And, and I pray that as the word is preached, that your people would have hearts that are receptive, ears to hear and hearts that are receptive. And I pray that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are in a series, I'm calling this series Exiled in Hope, but this, the message this morning I'm calling Strangers and Exiles. Strangers and Exiles. And this really is going to be a foundational message, uh, kind of to lay the groundwork for the rest of the, the, the eight weeks that will be in really the first two chapters in the book of First Peter. And this is the reality of the Christian life. And this is, I, I need to get some background and some context to, to who Peter is writing to here. Peter is writing to Christians that are that are exiled, that are dispersed all around the Roman Empire. And he is speaking to Christians of the first century, but he's speaking to Christians of the 21st century, and it's a, it's a picture of the fact that we are strangers and exiles in a place that is not our home. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we know that the kingdom of God is, and, and heaven is our home and that we feel like at times do you feel like at times that this is not your home how often do you feel that way very regularly because you look around and and what makes you feel like this is not your home you look around and and you see that there's values and beliefs and and things and stances that people make that don't line up with scripture there's there's the a, a direction of a country a, 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 a the, the direction of politicians and 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 things that go on in around our country we we look around and we say this is not my home there's this dissatisfaction in our heart with what we see going on all around us and we say lord even so come quickly do you have that desire and that cry well, i want you to know that 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 we're not the first Christians to have that, that desire and that cry. That, that throughout the life of the church, the history of the church, from the first disciples all the way until today, we have the same cry, which is, God, 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 God this is not our home. Lord, we feel like we are strangers and, and, and aliens. We feel like we're from another planet when we look around and we see the world all around us. And this letter that Peter is writing, he's writing it to Exiled Christians, they were, because of persecution, they were spread all around the Roman Empire. And so they are being persecuted. And why are they being persecuted? Why are these Christians being persecuted? Is it because of their political belief? Is it, is it because they don't want to submit to Roman government and they don't want to worship Nero as, as emperor? Is that why they're being persecuted? No. They're being persecuted because of their belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think, think of that for a moment. 
they are being persecuted and, and, and many of them, their lives were taken because of our belief like they had in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is, how, how does that make you feel when you think about that? I mean, for me, when I think about that, it's such a, a heavy a weight and burden that rests on my heart. And I say, Lord, Lord, would, would, would I stand? And I think about the, 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 the trials and the struggles that I walk through. And, and, and I think I have never been to the point where I've been persecuted for my belief. We're here. You're here today because of the resurrected Christ. That's why we're here. We're gathering because he is risen and he is alive. And the early church had to be dispersed and they, they dispersed and they spread all around the Roman Empire because of that persecution, because of the fear for their life. And Peter is writing this letter to them to remind them of some important truths, to remind them of the reality that God is with them, that God sees them and God knows them and that God has a plan for their life in spite of the persecution, in spite of the pain. So as we go through First Peter, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, as we go through the whole book, it's a letter written to, to, to Christians who were walking through, through the fire. Some even literally walking through fire. It's also a letter that will help teach us how to live Christian lives in the middle of a secular world. How do we, as, as we get further on into this series and especially into, in, into the next series uh, within First Peter, how do we live lives as strangers and exiles in a secular world that, that does not believe in the resurrection of Christ, doesn't have the biblical values? How do we live? And First Peter will also help us to keep our focus in the right place as a church and as believers as we navigate a world that is rapidly heading towards more antichrist philosophies and mindsets how how do we keep our priorities right how do we how do we keep our eyes on the right thing and this is what this journey through first peter is going to do so we're going to open it up i'm going to read the first two verses first peter chapter one verses one through two if you have your bibles you can open up to first peter one through two if you don't have your bibles you can look on the screen let's read the first two verses and this is, and we're going to unpack as an introduction to this whole series. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So this morning... As a way of introduction, just in, in these two verses, to kind of set the stage for the rest of our journey through First Peter, there's really three foundational truths from this introductory greeting that will help frame our, our entire study. And the first truth is this, is that God sees and God knows. God sees and God knows. Our God is a seeing God. He sees and he knows. Notice in that text there, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Elect exiles. And he lists where these, ex, these elect exiles are at. They're the exiles of the dispersion. They're the elect exiles of the, of the dispersion. It means that these Christians had to, and they were mainly, some Jews, but mainly Gentiles, had to disperse in these regions. And he lists those regions And he says that these elect exiles who are dispersed, they are dispersed according to what? The foreknowledge of God the Father. Wow. So he uses two words here. 
elect and the foreknowledge of God. Elect and foreknowledge. The word elect, when he describes these Christians that are dispersed all around the Roman Empire because of persecution, when he uses that word elect, it it really simply means, it, it does literally mean chosen. So he's saying that these Christians that are dispersed all around the Roman Empire, they are chosen exiles. They were chosen exiles. And then it says that that happened according to the foreknowledge of God. So what does foreknowledge mean? Real simple definition. It means to know, to know before. So God knew before that this was going to happen. So these are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. Why is that significant? Why would I even focus on the word elect and foreknowledge? Because the word elect and foreknowledge are, are, are words that, that, that are really have a lot of weight of meaning behind them. And they're words that we tend to probably pass over them really quickly and say, well, I don't really want to think about election and I don't want to think about foreknowledge because those things can be kind of complicated and and a little difficult to, uh, to understand but I think built into these two words there's power and there's truth there's such powerful comforting truth that is associated with these two words and it really is the first truth that I told you God sees and God knows and I believe That what Peter is trying to communicate to these exiles that are persecuted, that are dispersed. Can you imagine? Think about Candace and Stephen and their precious family. And they're going to another region. They're going to another part of of the world, right? Just imagine if they were doing that because of persecution. Imagine that because of their belief in Jesus Christ and their desire to tell others about that. Here in America, they have to disperse to go Not because they trained 10 years to go, but because they had to go because they had no other choice but but to go. And Peter is expressing to them some powerful truths about the election of God, about God choosing them and about God knowing them according to his foreknowledge. What is God communicating? He's communicating to them, to these Christians, I see you. I know you. Before the foundations of the world, I had a plan for your life. I see you and I know you. God is a God who sees and he knows. And he's at work in every detail of our life. How important is that when you're going through struggling and suffering in your life? Isn't it important to know that God sees and that God knows? Think about how powerful that would be when these Christians got that letter. Maybe they've been struggling saying, God, where are you? God, we are, we are here. We had to leave with our family. We're in another part of the, of the world that we're not accustomed to. We had to maybe leave a, 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 a place of, of business and finance. And now we're, we're somewhere else and, and we feel isolated and all alone. And Peter writes his letter and they open the letter and it says, he, this is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this letter is to the chosen exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. It just, it, it would breathe life into their heart to realize, no, this is not by accident. My life is just not happenstance, and I'm not just ending up where I'm ending up because, because God's just off in the distance and not a part of my life. No, God has called me. He has chosen me. He has a plan for my life. And according to his foreknowledge, he knew that I would be here. And if he knew that I would be here, then he must have a plan. Do you believe that? I was watching the returns for the... Uh, the, two, the two Georgia Senate seats that were up for grabs. And one of the, the guys that was running, his name was Ra- Raphael Warnock. Raphael Warnock. You guys have heard his name? Yeah? That's a sarcastic question. Um, but I was watching after he won on the Wednesday morning. He, does, he did a little, like a little video message to his, to his 
constituents that voted him in in Georgia. And he started, you know, saying, you know, just some typical things that a politician will say after he gets into office. And he was thanking them and telling them, thank you for your votes. And then he ended it like this. He said, Georgia, he said, I see you. I see you. And I know, and I know you, and I know where you live. I've been to your communities. I see you, and I know you. And he, he was like this, it was like this, 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 from the depth of his heart, he was trying to communicate this reality that, that, that it would be important for them to know that he sees them, and he knows them. Well, what, what was Raphael Warnock trying to communicate? I see your struggle. I see your pain. I see what you walk through, and I know you, and I'm going to help you. That's what he's trying to say. So my question to you today is, who would you rather see and know your life? Raphael Warnock or the infinite, eternal, all-knowing, omniscient, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe? Who would you rather see and know you? That's the point. God sees and God knows. Amen? And I know there's questions built into all, to all of that, and we'll get to some of that in the next thought as we unpack this. But do you remember the story in the book of Genesis whenever Sarai, Abraham and Abram and Sarai, Sarai could not get pregnant? So Sarai comes up with a plan because God had given Abraham, Abram, a dream or a, 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 a word, a vision and said, Abram, you're going to be the father of many nations. And he's like, how is this possible? How is this possible? That's going to happen. And so... Sarai comes up with a plan and says, well, I know I can't get pregnant, but I've got a, a, a handmaiden named Hagar. How about you take Hagar and you spend time with her and, and, and she will become pregnant and, and this is how it's going to happen. And so this, that's what happens. Hagar gets pregnant. And sure enough, Hagar kind of starts boasting in this reality that she was the one who had the baby. And there begins jealousy between Sarai and Hagar and Sarai... Uh, uh, pushes Hagar out and says, leave, go, we don't want you around here. And there's, Hag- there's Hagar with Ishmael, and they're wandering in the desert, and they're all alone, and, and Hagar cries out. Look at, look at Genesis sixteen thirteen. God speaks to her, and God says, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going I'm to watch over you and your son. And listen to what she says in response to God saying that. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing you are a god of seeing for she said truly i have seen him who looks after me i have seen him who looks after me you are a god of seeing i i I don't i can't explain all the reasons why i go through what i go through in my life but god has chosen me he's called me he's called me where i am at he's called you where you are at You are elect. You are chosen of God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are elect and you are chosen by him. He is a God of seeing. I love the phrase that she used there. I have seen him who looks after me. He has a plan. We are chosen according to his foreknowledge. That means that long before we ever existed, we were on the mind and the heart of God. Isn't that not good news? The psalmist David puts it like this in Psalm 139. Beautiful section of scripture. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar off. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. 
you hem me in behind and before and, and, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What is David saying there? This knowledge of, of the fact that we're chosen, that God knew us when we were, even before we were in our mother's womb. Such knowledge is too high. It's too wonderful for me to even comprehend. It is high. I cannot attain it. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Listen, listen. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Wow. Can you figure that one out? I can't. But it's comforting to know even before I was in my mother's womb, God called me. He chose me. He's got a plan for my life. Do you believe that here today? Election and foreknowledge. As believers in Jesus Christ, we can rest in the reality that we are chosen by God. As believers, we can rest in this reality that we are chosen by God and his plans for our life are good and that he sees and knows every detail. The doctrine of election is a biblical doctrine. It's a biblical doctrine. Both Old and New Testaments. It's abundantly clear. Election. God chose Israel of all the people of the world. He started with Abraham and, and created a people. Of all the people of the world, he could have chosen any nation, any people, but he chose Israel. He elected them. He called them. Election is a biblical doctrine. The question is not, do you believe in election? Because if you believe in the Bible... You believe in election. So the question is, is do you believe the Bible? So election is a difficult doctrine to understand, but it's biblical. So a side note. I'm going to take a little side note. You guys ready for a little side journey? So you guys got to hang with me. I'm going to preach longer than I I did last Sunday, I promise you, okay? So bear with me. Buckle your seatbelts, but we're going to take a little side journey. I kind of set the stage for you about this reality of election and foreknowledge. But really, all these things I'm talking to you about right now, People have a hard, have an easy time swallowing that. Okay, God knew me when I was in my, in my mother's womb, and he knows me. He sees me. He's a God who sees, and he's a God who knows. And, and I could end the sermon right there, and we'd all go home happy. God, you see where I'm at. Amen? But that's not really the issue that people have with election and foreknowledge. The issue is around the doctrine of salvation. So what about that? And I could not touch on this. I could just pass it over. But I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to help us. Some of you, I'm going to cause a problem in your brain, and you'll have to just ask God to help you, and you can come and talk to me later. Because some of you aren't even thinking about what I'm about to talk to you about. But, but, but some of you do. So here's some questions. As concerning salvation, election, and foreknowledge. Here's some questions. Does, does God choose us? Are we elected to salvation? Do we have a choice? Are we saved by faith or election? So those are some common questions. Are we saved by faith or are we saved because God chose us? Are we saved by faith or because God chose us? Are are, are, are there a group of people that were elected and chosen against their will to go to heaven? And are are there a group of people that are elected and chosen to go to hell against their will? 
is what, what's true. It's, and, and this is kind of where people's minds go when it comes to the word election and foreknowledge. And as you read it, especially in Romans chapter 9 and, 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 and in other portions of Scripture, you can kind of be confused and think, well, where, what, what's the truth? Where is the reality? Where, what, what, what is God saying here? So I believe the Bible is very clear on the subject of election and salvation. It's very clear. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I've got a section of scriptures that I'm going to read that really I- illustrate the fact that salvation belongs to God. That God is sovereign in salvation. That God is the one who calls and chooses. And I'm going to read a section, some sections of scripture that, that talk about our responsibility to respond in faith. So just listen to this. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he, God, chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. When did we get chosen for salvation? Before the foundation of the world. That's pretty powerful. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his his will. Kind of like the idea that Peter was saying there. According to the foreknowledge of God. According to his plan. That's Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Romans 9, 14. God is declaring, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, in the, in the subject of, of, of election and salvation, it depends not on human exertion or will, but on God who has mercy. Look at Acts 13. And when the Gentiles heard this, heard the gospel, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Wow. Those are some strong strong sections. Some strong things to process and to think about. Appointed, called, chosen, elected. It's not about, it's not according to our our human will that, that we are saved. That's what, that's what scripture, that's what Romans 9 says. That, or, or that God has mercy or compassion. It is according to God that does it. Okay, you guys, you guys can handle that some? All right. What about John chapter 3? John chapter 3 is a great section. It's a, it's a section where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He comes to Jesus at night because he, he doesn't want to be seen by his other Pharisees, that he's actually going to try to have a conversation with Jesus. And he asked Jesus, how can someone enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. You have to be born from above, born again. And Nicodemus asked the obvious question, well, well, how is that possible? How can I be born again? Do I have to enter my mother's womb again? So clearly, Nicodemus doesn't understand the spiritual realities that Jesus is trying to communicate to him. So Jesus says, okay, I'm going to explain it to you. Here's how you're born again. Here's how it can happen. He says, Nicodemus, look at the wind. He said, do you see the wind? He said, you see how it it goes this way and it goes that way and you don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going? Have you ever been able to control the wind? Anybody here today? What is Jesus saying to, to to Nicodemus, to Nick? He's saying, Nick, look, look at the wind. See where it's going this way, it's going that way? You don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And Jesus says, so it is. This is an illustration. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He says, 
He says, salvation is not of you. He's speaking to a Pharisee. He's saying, salvation is not of you. It's not of your works. It's not of your ability. It's not of your doing. God is the one who initiates salvation. Look at the wind. It goes wherever it wants to. It goes according to the will of its creator, who is God who created the wind. So those are some strong sections. And I, that, I, I just, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the biblical picture of election and foreknowledge and, and, and the will of God in salvation. That salvation comes from God. Let's look at the other half. Okay? So are we chosen and elected to salvation? Is it by election or is it by faith? Continuing conversation with Nicodemus. Just when Nicodemus told, just when Jesus told Nicodemus, look at the wind, He says, look at the wind. You can't control it. So it is with being saved. It's not up to you. Jesus finishes his conversation with Nicodemus. And he says this in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever would believe. Whoever would what? Be elected? Be chosen? Whoever would believe. Whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. Look at John 6, Jesus speaking. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, whoever is elected or chosen, he says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. So how do you have eternal life? You look on the Son and you believe in Him. And I will raise Him up on the last day. Romans 10, 9 and 10. I quoted it earlier. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So how will you be saved? Because you're elected or because you're chosen? Or because you believe? It says here, it's because you believe. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the, one, with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Second Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what do we do with this? So what is true? So what is true? You see a paradox in Scripture that God is, that he has foreknowledge and he knows the end from the beginning and that he chooses and he elects and he calls. But then you see on the other end that we have a responsibility to, to, we have a responsibility to respond in faith, to to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and that's how we are saved. So so what is true? Do we have to pick and choose between the doctrine of election and and, and the foreknowledge of God and, and him calling and electing and that between Human responsibility? Are, are we called to choose? My answer to you is, 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 is no. That we cannot take scissors to scriptures and cut out areas that make us uncomfortable. And I'll be the first to tell you, I don't understand how all this works out. And no one does. No, 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 no greatest, the greatest theologians that have ever walked the planet. This has been something that's been debated and thought about deeply for long before we were ever sitting in this sanctuary at 1045 on a Sunday morning. But you know what it does? Both are true. Election is true. It's biblical. Our responsibility is true. It's, it's biblical. They are parallel truths that run side by side. On the, on the one end, the reality of the election of God 
This is what it does. The doctrine of, of election and God's foreknowledge, it informs our worship. It motivates our worship. We stand in awe of God and we say, God, I don't understand your ways. Did you, did you hear David in Psalm 139? When he's contemplating the fact that God knew him before he was ever in his mother's womb, he said, this knowledge is too high for me. It's too big for me. And so whenever we look at these truths that are hard to understand, how can God know, but then I still be responsible? We say, God, this is, this is what makes you God and I'm not. And I stand in awe of your ways. You are good, that you're sovereign, that you're powerful, that you're in control. And then the doctrine of man's responsibility to respond in faith informs our evangelism. That's why Candace and Stephen are going. That's why I made a call to salvation after the prayer time. It informs our evangelism. The fact, listen, no one will go to hell because they were predestined to go to hell. People go to hell because they do not believe in the Son of God. That's what scripture teaches. So this view of this doctrine of the responsibility of man, it informs our evangelism. But here's where we have trouble is we like to create all of our doctrines into a nice, neat little box that don't cause us problems. But I've never read the Bible and had it all figured out, and I never will. I don't understand. I have, I have questions. I have things that, God, I don't know how in your mind this is working out, and I would do it a little bit different than you would. But that's what makes God God, and I'm not. Okay, that's my side note. I don't know how I'm going to go back to my, to my message. That was a, a message within a message, Lord, help us all. So, so I, I just have to say this, and I wasn't planning on saying this, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, you know, I, I believe what, what the Bible says. And I, I want you to know, this is my first time I've ever addressed this subject. I want you to know, and some of you, you won't even know what this term is, but for those that do, you'll know what I'm saying. I am not a Calvinist, Okay? If you know what Calvinism is, then you know what I'm saying. I am just like, what was it, George H.W. Bush? He said, no more new taxes, and he repeated himself or something like that, and then he raised taxes later. I'm not going to do that to you, okay? I am not a Calvinist. I have never been, and I never will be. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ who believes the Bible, and I believe in election because the Bible teaches it. But I don't believe in election that people are destined to hell without a choice. That's not biblical. I believe that all men are responsible. Amen? Okay. All right, let me see how I'm going to do this here. Our God is a God who sees and a God who knows. He knows the end from the beginning. He is omniscient. This is why why Peter is addressing these issues. This is why he's bringing up the the, the word election and foreknowledge, because he wants them to rest in the beauty of that message. Just like I ended my sermon last week, I had that that little small pillow that that I brought out. It's the pillow of providence, of God's providential, sovereign hand. That's where we rest. That this life is not all on me. Isn't that good news? It's not all on me. If it was all on me, man, I'm, I'm going to be a wreck. I'm going to be a wreck. It, the, the, the knowledge of God as sovereignly in control and working his plan is a beautiful place to rest our heads. The fact that Peter begins his letter speaking to these realities of God's nature it would have brought great comfort to the early disciples as well as to us in 2021. There's a great comfort in knowing that our God is in control that, that, and there's a great comfort in knowing that our God chose us and that he knew us before we were even in our mother's womb. And, and this reality of God being a, 
a knower and a seer. He sees and he knows. It leads us to our second reality from this text. Our second truth is that God is actively working his plan for his glory. He's a God who sees and he's a God who knows. And he is a God that is actively working his plan for his glory. And when we look around today, we can look around today and we can think, oh God, where are you? Have you done that before? Look around at the chaos all around us and you, and you can think, God, where are you? Look at the chaos over here and the chaos over there and the drama in, in Washington, D.C. that happened last week. And, and look at all the political turmoil. Are they going to impeach Trump? Or are they not? And, and you get all this stuff going on. You, you, and then throughout all of 2020, all the drama that happened, you can think, God, where are you? And you can begin to believe that God is not actively working to fulfill a plan. And, you can be, and we can slowly become deist. What's, what's a deist? Someone who believes in God, but that God's not personal and actively working in our lives. But that's not what Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us over and over again that God is working a plan, that he has a plan. Before the ages began, he had the plan of redemption already planned out. He had, he had his plan to, to, to fulfill, and he is actively fulfilling his plan. God sees and he knows, and he's actively working to fulfill his purposes in the earth. The disciples of Peter's day certainly would have wondered, just as we do, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why are you making that decision? Have you ever made a decision, uh, and, and, and you know, it was a decision that impacted your children, and your children look at you crossways? And they think, why are you doing that? Has that ever happened to you as parents? Yeah? How often does it happen to you? How many times a day does it happen to you? But what's, what's, what's the issue here, right? So, so, so you have a plan, and you, in, you unfold your plan, and your kids come up, and they don't like the plan, and they say, this doesn't make any sense. So what makes you right and your kids wrong? More information is what makes you right and your kids wrong. That's the reality of what happens whenever I make a decision and my kids don't understand it. It's because I'm up here, not just physically speaking height-wise, but I'm up here in my knowledge and my understanding. I can see further beyond them than they can see. And so they are gonna, they're going to moan and they're going to groan and they're going to complain and say, Mom, Dad, why are you doing this? Well, it's because I have more knowledge. I understand more than you do right now. You may not get it but you will one day. Does that sound very common for us as Christians? God, why? And God says, well, first of all, I was here before you were in your mother's womb. I chose you. I called you. First of all, I was the one who threw the stars up there, spoke them into existence. I was the one who created the time in general. I now know that when time started and I know when I'm going to end time. And so I got it. I, I think I got a little bit more information than you. What's God telling us when He's reminding us of that? I've got a plan. I see and I know. And when you look around the world today and you look at the turmoil and you can begin to think, well, God, I don't know, God, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand it. We've got to step back and we've got to see the bigger picture of who God is. He's a God who sees and He's a God who knows and He is a, and he is a God who has a plan. He has a plan. King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest, one of the, the, the greatest kings of his time, king over Babylon, he had a dream. And he went to Daniel, and Daniel gave him the interpretation of the dream. And the dream said that Nebuchadnezzar was going to crawl like a madman on the ground for seven years. He was going to lose his mind. And so 
Nebuchadnezzar heard the interpretation and really didn't think too much about it because later on in Daniel 4, he begins to look over his kingdom and he says, look at all the kingdom that I have established and I rule in might and power. And in that moment, Daniel 4 says, he was struck down and he lost his mind and he crawled on the ground and ate like an ox and grew long tails, uh, nails and tails uh, uh, well, not talons, whatever you call them. Nails, tails, talons, something like that. Not, I don't know. He looked like, a, looked like an overgrown oxen. Why are you laughing at me, Mom? <laughs> it's a bad thing about having your mom on the front row. Look at Daniel 4. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones. To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the the lowliest of men. After the seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's strength comes back to him. His mind comes back to him and look at what he declares. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It lasts more than four years, people, or eight. I'm going to stop for a second. Think about that. It lasts more than four years or eight years. Our God is so much more powerful than the kingdoms of this world. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing in comparison to him. And he does according to his will amongst the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He does according to his plan amongst the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand. You can't impeach him. He wasn't voted in and you can't impeach him. Or no one can say to him, what have you done? God sets kings up and God removes king. He puts people in positions of power and he removes them. Psalms 135 says this, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In, in heaven or on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. So God is working his plan. He sees and he knows, but what is the purpose of his plan? What's the, what's the theme of the entire Bible? The theme of the entire Bible is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Of God. Look at John chapter 9. Look at John chapter 9. The disciples come to Jesus and they have a difficult question about a man that was born blind. And this is what, this is what speaks to why God does what he does. Why he allows what he allows. And we have questions about it. The disciples come in John 9 and, they, and as he went along he saw a man blind from birth. His, disciple, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Whose fault was it? That's what they're asking. Was it because he's, he's a sinner or because his parents sinned that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened. What happened? What, what happened? He was born blind. Why was he born blind? So that the works of God might be displayed in him. That knowledge is too high for me. Is it too high for you? It's too high for me. God, why would you do that? This is where you throw up your hands. 
You say, God, you're God and I'm not. You didn't have to make him born blind to demonstrate your power. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But the purpose of all of his plans, even when we don't understand them, even when we look at Washington, D.C., that what happened last week, we think, God, where are you? What is going on? The purpose of his plans is so that he would receive glory. And he can receive glory in and in everything that unfolds in our life, in and through everything. That is the purpose. The Westminster Confession, which was written in 1647, it says this, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is our chief end. Our chief goal is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Psalm 115 says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Your name be glorified. Oh, that men would praise the name of of Jesus. That's the purpose of God's plans. We might look around and say, God, I I don't understand, but one thing I know when I look around, I know that man's not in control. Men and women in high places of power are only allowed there because God placed them there. And in a moment, God can take their sense from them and remove them from office, remove them from power. They're only allowed there, they're only there because God allows them to be there. And God placed him there so that ultimately his name would be glorified. And who are we to say that God won't allow things to happen in our country that we don't like to get glory? It's true. God's done that throughout human history. Just because we don't get our way and we'll get what we want doesn't mean God can't be glorified. Let us not be fighting the wrong battles. We are strangers and exiles. We belong to the kingdom of God. When we look at our world, we must ask two questions. How will God get glory through all of this? And how can I be a part of it? Don't ask the question, God, I I, I don't know why this is happening. No, it's how how are you going to get glory? It looks crazy right now, but how are you going to get glory? And God, how can I be a part of it? Because I know you're a God who sees and you're a God who knows and you're a God who is actively working your plan for your glory. Amen? Lastly, this morning, we arrive at the purpose. We're wrapping it up. You guys have done well. There's been a lot that we've covered. There's been some deep subjects that we've covered here today. But we're going to end where Peter ends his introduction. To me, this is the purpose of his whole letter. This is the purpose right here. Look back at the text. 1 Peter 1, 2, second half of 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the third truth is this, is that God has made available to us his abundant grace and peace. Amen? He's a God who sees. He's a God who knows. He's a God that's actively working his plan for his glory. And he has made available to us his abundant grace and peace. Have you ever had somebody go over the top in their generosity towards you. They, they, they tell you they want to give you something. And they just go over the top. And you're like, stop. <laughs> That's too much. That's too much money. That's too much of whatever they're doing to bless you. And you think it's, just, it's too much. Stop. Stop. You, 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 you've gone too far. No more. No more. This is what Peter is saying to the early disciples. May the grace and peace of God be multiplied to you. And, and, and sometimes we can think, God, we don't deserve it. No, you don't. 
You don't, you don't deserve his grace and you can't earn it. And, and God, we, we, I don't deserve to have the peace that you've given me in Christ. And you know you don't deserve it. And sometimes you feel like, God, why are you doing this? And God says, no, I'm giving you more. More grace. More peace. Abundant grace. Abundant peace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. I chose you. I called you. I set you apart. And I'm lavishly pouring on my grace and my peace. I love that Peter uses the word grace, the words grace and peace. Because honestly, that's, that's salvation. Salvation is by grace alone. And then what do we receive after salvation? Peace that passes all understanding. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So grace is how we're saved. Look at Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Grace and peace and salvation. Grace and peace for today. For today. Grace and peace for tomorrow. And tomorrow. And tomorrow. And the day after tomorrow. And the day after that day. Grace and peace for the day after that day. And the day after that day. And the day after that day. And the day after that day. Grace and peace after that day. You're thinking down the road. You remember something. You, you know something's coming down the road. It's on your calendar. Grace and peace for that day. Grace and peace for that day. Next week, you're on the plane flying to Honduras. Grace and peace for that day and the day after that because God is a God who sees and he's a God who knows and he's a God who's working his plan for his glory and he has grace and peace for every moment of that plan. And still more. (laughs) And still more. Amen? All right, I'm done preaching. I'm done. I'm done preaching. I I, I just want to worship God. I want to worship God through song. We're going to end celebrating a God who sees, a God who knows. A God who is actively working his plan. And and, and a God who, a God who has grace and peace for us every day. So let's end singing the song that nothing's impossible. Amen. There is no shadow that has ever overcome your life. And there is no rival that could ever stand against your mind.